Welcome to Unlocking Mindset. I'm Jennifer Zock, and today I'm in conversation with Kate Sukol. Kate Sukol is a passionate traveler and science writer. Her work has appeared in a number of publications, including the Atlantic Monthly, USA Today, and the National Geographic Traveler. Kate lives outside of Houston, Texas, and today we are in discussion about her latest book, The Art of Risk, The New Science of Courage, Caution, and Change. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, today we're talking about your latest book, The Art of Risk. Mm -hmm. And so I'd like to start with, how do you define risk? Ah, at its simplest, risk is just uncertainty, right? It's, it's any decision you make or action you take where the outcome is uncertain. Um, and that's almost every you know decision and every action that there is you are never 100% sure of what the outcome will be i think where it becomes much more interesting and where we don't talk about risk in this way a lot is if we try to distill down the brain's job to the simplest thing obviously the brain is you know very complex organ does lots and lots of things um, but if we were to really distill it down into its simple into its essence, what its job is. Its job is, to, is, is the prediction machine. It's there to help us figure out what's coming next. So hopefully we can respond to it appropriately in a way that we can survive or, or hopefully thrive. Um, so really when it comes down to it, risk is part and parcel of every decision we make every single day. We don't talk about it that way. We, we tend to inflate it in a lot of ways. Um, but it, it really is that simple. It's anything you do where you're not quite sure what the outcome is. Yeah, can you give us an example? Because I'm sure there's numerous times during the day that we're taking risk and we don't even realize it. What Absolutely. might one of those, what might an example of a common risk of that sort be? You know, it, it's even as simple as whether or not to have that third cup of coffee. You know, so many people, 10, 30, 11 a.m., and they're thinking, uh, still not quite awake yet, so I should have that third cup. They know that it's going to probably give them the jitters or keep them up that night. You know, there's the risk of, of, of an outcome, but then in the moment, they're like, oh, no, I need this caffeine now. Um, you know, it can be as simple as, um, you know, I, I, Someone who tends to, uh, you know, every time I wear a red blouse, uh, white blouse, rather, you know, I dribble red wine or something on it. That's a risk. These are all little things, but and they seem silly um, in the grand scheme of things. And yet, these little decisions have powerful impact on the whole context and what happens in your day. They influence your mood. They influence how you react to a situation. They uh, influence what happens next. And so while we talk about risks so often in terms of billion dollar business deals or extreme sports, in the way that the brain is really processing risk is in these little decisions that you make without even realizing it each and every day. In your book, you write that risk taking is a term with a lot of emotional baggage. Yes. What is some of yes. that baggage? Well, I think it comes down to, we, we talk about risk in extremes. You know, I just mentioned that we talk about risk all the time. It's, you know, that uh, million dollar poker hand you're watching on the World Series of Poker. 
Uh, it's that corporate takeover for the billion dollar companies. It's this, uh, you know, I don't know if you watched uh, the, the Nat Geo, uh, National Geographic movie on Alex Honnold and his free solo, it's called Free Solo. Uh, but he, you know, climbs this huge peak in Yosemite without any ropes. We see these things and we think that's what risk is, right? It's, it's danger. Mm -hmm. It's death defying. It's something that's going to make us or break us. Um, and I think that's part of the problem and why most of us end up making a lot of mistakes when it comes to assessing risk. It's because we don't realize that it, it really is all those little things as well. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, when you look at those huge risks, uh, whether it's the, the guy playing that hand on TV or Alice Honnold climbing, what you don't see are the little, all the little risks that they built off of to get to that point. You know, Alice Honnold didn't decide one day, oh, wow, I'm, I see that thousand foot, you know, peak right there. I'm just going to climb it without a rope and see how it goes. He had years of, of practice where he honed his craft, where he learned how to do it. He even took that route with ropes beforehand to prepare. So while, you know, we look at the big things and we talk about the big things, and then of course they're exciting and, you know, somewhat frightening sometimes, um, you know, it's, it's, the little things that really get us there. And we tend to ignore all the preparation, all the work and all those little risks that finally get us to the big ones. You know, I think we do the same thing with courage. Yes. They, we take, and, and it takes, you know, courage is part of taking risks, but there we think in extremes. And there, you know, sometimes it takes courage just to get up and out of bed. <laughs> Yep, in the morning for some for some folks, or so in a PTO meeting, or yeah. you know, send that email to your boss about that project that just isn't going the way that you thought it should, uh, mm -hmm. or even you know, I have two teenagers. Sometimes it takes all the courage in the world just to <laughs> manage something with them. Um, right. You know, and we these these don't seem like glorified activities, and uh, you know, but when I say you know, risk is a term with a lot of emotional baggage. When we talk about it in such extremes, it's either the thing that's going to make us or the thing that's going to kill us, we miss a lot of the nuances that can really help hone smart decision making. So true. The next question I'd like to ask, which I think we're, we're naturally flowing into here, is how can we begin to think differently about risk? Well, uh, sorry, so not believing the hype. I, I mean, I think it's a matter of understanding how the brain um, starts to process information when you're going to make a decision. And that's whether you're going to have that third cup of coffee or whether you're, you know, ready to uh, quit your job and start, you know, touring nationally with a band or something. You know, it, there's so many different, whether it's big or small, um, your brain has a very complex circuit. Um, and, and it sort of has three main parts. Um, okay. and every time you make a decision, sort of these three parts, you know, throw up different weights and, and, you know, different values into this equation about whether it's going to be a go or no go. So the first one, uh, is an area of the brain called the basal ganglia. I don't want to get too complex. I know people get bogged down, but you can think of this as the brain's, uh, reward center, right? You know, okay. so many of the risks that we take in life are about you know love or food or excitement or a thrill and and this is definitely the center that's looking at that 
Um, and so that is all of those drives that make you want to go after those things that you want most in life. But as anyone who lives in polite society knows, you can't have everything you want exactly the moment that you want it. Uh, mm -hmm. Sometimes it's got to be no, or at least a not yet. And so there we have the sort of the executive control part of the brain, the frontal lobes. They're there to okay. say, okay, wait a minute. Yes, sex is great, but probably not with your married neighbor. Oh, yes, chocolate cake, best food ever, but you really need some veggies. It's there to kind of temper those, uh, you know, those urges, those, those drives. Um, I think one of the best examples of, of and, you know, when I, I talk about this when I give talks a lot, um, back in the day when my son was about two or three years old, we were at a cafe and he really wanted, he saw that the, and we lived in Europe at the time, the tables were very close together and he saw that the woman sitting next to us had just ordered this glorious piece of chocolate cake and he wanted some. And I was like, not now, we gotta, we're waiting for our food. We are going to, you know, wait, and then we can talk about chocolate cake later. Well, of course, you know, being a toddler, he just hops off his seat and he swoops his hand directly into this woman's cake and shoves it in his mouth. Oh, no. That is a life lived by your reward centers, right? You want it, you <laughs> yes. want it now. And while this woman was very forgiving, everybody thought this was hilarious because he was, you know, two, three and cute. Uh -huh. Imagine a 30-year-old man doing that. So it's not okay, right? right? Yeah, it's not okay. Over there to say no, no, you're, there's going to be a problem if you do this. Um, so as we grow, you know, younger people don't have as well developed frontal lobes, uh, so they, they tend to give into those impulses much e more easily. But then there's a third part, um, and it's the emotional centers of the brain, the limbic system, how things feel. And while we, you know, think about, you know, feelings so often of does it feel good, does it not, it, it, what we fail to realize so often when it comes to our emotions is they tend to be like little faint whispers of our experience. When you have that mm. gut feeling, when you have, it's yeah. because you've been here before, you know what's going to happen. Uh -huh. At this point, you know, I'm sure that when my son, even though he's 15 now, when he sees that delicious piece of chocolate cake on some old lady's plate, there's, there's that, that, that hint of warning somewhere in the back of his brain saying, no, 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 that's a bad idea. Don't grab that yet. Uh -huh. You need to negotiate in order your own. So I, you know, I, we talk so often about emotions being these huge things that pull us, but I think so often we have these little faint whispers of feeling that will push us in one direction or the other and what they really represent as our experiences from before. Okay. Um, I'm at the climbing gym and the last time I did that hard wall, I took a pretty big tumble. So I'm a little extra anxious about it. Um, uh -huh. okay. You know what? I already talked to my boss about, you know, going after this project or and they said, you know, that this was definitely the, the best approach with this client. So I'm feeling really good. I'm going to go. So these three systems sort of work together and, and throw up a whole bunch of different weights and, and put in all of the different factors so that your brain can basically run an algorithm and determine whether a, a risk is worth taking. Now, how do we keep the past from dictating the future so that it, it 
so we stay safe, but we also don't give up taking risks. Well, some people don't. Uh, a lot of times it's, you know, your past experience with something that can hold you back and can overwhelm and, and makes it so you miss out on a lot of good stuff. Um, okay. But I think a lot of times, uh, and, and what a lot of good risk takers do when they do hit some kind of wall is, is kind of a good old fashioned after action review. What, what could I have done differently? What could I have assessed in a different way that might've brought me closer to success? A lot of times when we, don't exactly get the outcome we want, you know, it can be easy to just say, well, okay, I wasn't meant to do that, so never mind. Um, mm-hmm. But I think what we see with so many successful risk takers, whether they're firefighters or whether they're, you know, these, these great business people or whether they're brain surgeons, mm-hmm. is that they learn from their mistakes. They don't let them hold them back. Um, and growth mindset. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, here's one of, so for the book, I, I not only talked to scientists about the brain science of risk, but I also wanted to compare and contrast it with real world risk takers. So I spoke to a world series of poker player. I spoke to a neurosurgeon. I spoke to a firefighter. I spoke to a special forces operator, green beret. Um, and what shocked me is I, every single one of them, in one fashion or another told me, I don't consider myself a risk taker. And when you push them on that, you're like, "Uh, hey, uh, I don't know if you know this guy, but you're in somebody's brain mucking about, or hey, you're jumping out of the helicopter, rappelling down into enemy fire. You're you're a risk taker, trust me. Um, Uh You know, they break it down really into preparation and homework. And this is like the least exciting thing that we wanna hear about, right? We want to, these are our heroes. These are the people we talk about. You know, we want to believe that there's something special about them. And the truth of the matter is, is they they probably have some gifts. Don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. They do the work. They, you know, that special forces operator can repel down because he's done so much training with repelling. He knows what to expect uh, in a certain, um, you know, combat situation. He trusts his team and trains with his team. So he knows what his job is and the job of the guy next to him, so he knows how to move forward. And when there is a mistake or when there is something doesn't go right, they look at that and they look at how they can do better next time. Um, mm-hmm. You know, going back to the Al Tunnel example of, of free solo climbing, you know, I'm guessing he has probably fallen off, probably not a thousand foot cliff, obviously, because he's still with us, but he's uh-huh. probably fallen off a ton of climbing walls in his time. And he could have at any point said, I'm done. This isn't for me. But no, he got himself up, he dusted himself off, and he figured out a new route. And really, that's the way that most successful risk takers do it. They are not successful 100% of the time. No one is. Mm-hmm. Um, but we may, it may sometimes seem that way from the outside. But there are a whole bunch of mistakes and failures and workarounds along the way that have actually gotten them to the successes where they are. Right, right. By keeping that growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. And I would venture to say that 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 reward system that's part of the brain, Mm -hmm. somewhere in there, that that is a part of being willing to keep going. Yes. 
I think there's part of that, but then I think it's also, you know, in terms of the training, the homework, that preparation, you know, that is something that mm -hmm. can uh, gives you the experience to know what works, what doesn't, what puts you ahead. And so then those faint whispers of emotion aren't things that are kind of lying to you based on something you saw in a movie or happened to a friend of yours or whatever, but they're, they're little whispers of truth based on your own experiences of how you uh, interacted with these kind of uh, situations in the past. And you know what I guess marvel at sometimes is that I've had conversations with people that they are in top positions and they've obviously you don't get there without taking risk right but they don't consider themselves risk takers in fact they'll go as far as to define themselves as being risk averse absolutely Absolutely. Well, because I think this is another thing when we talk about risk taking or risk being a term with emotional baggage. So often we assume that impulsive behavior and risky decision making are the same things and they're not. These are not impulsive people. These are people who work hard. They do their homework. They are prepared. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it really does make the difference. You know, this isn't just some guy, you know, walking, you know, taking the elevator up to the 34th floor and pushing for a deal. These are people who, you know, really work at it. And, you know, going back to that, another sort of, in some ways, when you think about it, it's sort of one of those, oh, yeah, I guess that makes sense kind of moments. But so much of, you know, how we assess risk really is what we're familiar with. Um, and it's funny, depending where you're from, what you consider risk can change so much. So for example, I grew up, you know, in New Jersey, I went into New York city all the time. Even when I was like 12 and 13 years old by myself, I took the subway, you know, I, it, it was just, that's how you get around the city. It wasn't a big deal. Mm -hmm. Um, and then when I moved down to Texas and I would tell people this, they were just shocked. Like, like what? <laughs> How, you know, they, they basically think about the subway, you know, their experience with it is what they see on Law and Order or their favorite New York TV show. And so they think uh -huh. that they should be mugged. So, you know, that really changes your familiarity with this situation, changes the way that you assess it. But, you know, you take, you, you flip that on its head. You take a hardcore, you know, person from Manhattan who, you know, rides the one or the nine train all day long, and then you put them in a rental car in the middle of middle America, and, uh -huh. you know, you give them directions, like you might give your neighbor, okay, you just need to go down, like, you need to travel west, you know, mm -hmm. for about three miles, and then turn left at the blue barn, they're going to be all like, what, wait, where am I going? Because they're uh -huh. just not used to, you know, wait, I need a grid, you know, with my streets, I, I, I don't even know what I'm doing here. So how you assess those risks really starts with what you're familiar with, what, and what you're familiar with ultimately becomes what you're comfortable with. And then you right. build from there. So when these people tell you that they are not risk takers, it's because they've gotten to a point where they're so familiar and so comfortable that they're not looking at all the scary unknowns that, that could, you know, really stop us in our tracks. They're uh -huh. looking at the, okay, 
this is what this means, this is what that means, and this is how I can deal with that one factor, and we'll be good to go. So it really does start with familiarity. And, you know, I, I remember somebody years ago, I went skydiving, and my skydiving instructor said, you know, all of us here went skydiving for the first time at some point. And mm -hmm. sometimes I think about that a lot, and, it, you know, it seems really silly, but no, they didn't, you know, start as jump masters at one point they were the newbie going out of the plane not knowing to what to expect the thing was is they kept going they kept with that training they kept with that homework and then they got to the point where they got really comfortable with it you just need to be willing to be a beginner yes. at some point in time and then keep practicing but Absolutely. i really appreciate what you you shared that explains a lot about when I, you know, hear someone say, I'm risk averse, but I know they've accomplished all of these things. So yeah, that sheds a lot of light. <laughs> well, and I think also with those people, you know, when they say that they're risk averse, they're in a much better position to understand what the risks actually are. I think mm -hmm. so often when you're not familiar with a particular pursuit or job, um, you know, I may look at a particular house fire and think, oh my gosh, that's nuts. And that firefighter who's had all that training is like, oh, okay, so we don't have, and I'm just, this is totally out of my, uh, you know, making it up as I go along here, but okay, uh -huh. the, you know, the, the, it's, this fire is contained to this area. It doesn't have windows nearby. It's going to be really easy to put it in, or at least it looks like it's going to be straightforward to put it out, but I don't have that knowledge or understanding of the building's structural aspects. I don't have an understanding of what, you know, the water, how much water is needed or what I need to do to put it out. Um, so while I just see a fire and want to run in the other direction, that firefighter is thinking, okay, this is actually pretty straightforward. It's going to move toward the risk. Mm -hmm. They have the past knowledge to be able to assess. Absolutely. Yeah. They know yeah. what the actual risks are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, do you think that we have become so dependent upon data that we are less willing to take risks, that we're overly dependent upon data, so to speak? Um. That I would say that we're overly dependent on data because the thing is, is we're terrible at uh, human brains are terrible at processing data appropriately and doing the statistics. We're bad at it. Um, I, I think what it is is it's it's being able to have access to the right data, the data that is actually going to help us make the better decision. And again, you know, as boring as it sounds, where that, that's where that homework comes in. So you know, this data matters this data doesn't. So I don't have to be overwhelmed with the sheer amounts of, of all these different factors. I know that this is actually what I need to focus on. This is what I need to manage to move forward. And the rest of it will take care of itself. Yeah, that's, that's very true. And, that, and it's very easy to have too much data. You want to pick the right data to look at and use it as a as a guide mm -hmm. for for decision making and potential risk taking absolutely oh. now we hear about different organizations 
that we're told that they encourage, actually encourage their employees to take risks. Do you mm -hmm. think that's true? Um, I think, it, uh, you know, certainly anyone in the business world who is going to take things a step further, come up with that new product or process or way of doing things, they're taking risks, right? Because they, they, they wouldn't be able to set themselves apart from the rest if they weren't. As to whether or not they're actually being supported in those risk-taking, I don't know. I, 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 what I feel like I see in a lot of companies is they have the standard, you know, Fortune 500, the way that they've always done things. They have their corporate culture. It's generally pretty said. But then what they've done is they've created either by buying a particular startup or by, um, you know, starting a small division they kind of let these risk takers go over there. So I don't know that every employee is necessarily, uh, you know, encouraged to take risks. I think a lot of times, you know, the way these, these organizations uh, are able to do the things that they do is because they do have so much structure and risk taking in structure sometimes don't do so well. Um, but a lot of times they'll have these sort of side projects, you know, their, their secret project X's or whatever, um, <laughs> where people have some money and more wiggle room to really do something unique. Um, and I guess in a way that is, you know, facilitating or encouraging risk taking, but I know, don't know that that's necessarily happening at the, uh, at every level of the organization. But I think your mileage varies depending where you work, what you do, and, and you know, sort of what your job description is. The culture of the organization. Yeah. I found one particular part of your book really interesting about how people going to business school for years have been taught to avoid risk. Mm -hmm. And so I think about that, that made sense at a time when the majority of tasks being performed were more routine in nature. Mm -hmm. Now they are so, our roles are so dynamic and changing all the time that it seems like being taught to avoid risk could be riskier today than, you know, in the at the, the point of the industrial revolution, for example. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? Um, I mean, I think that to be successful, you have to have a, a good understanding of data statistics it helps to understand how you may be swayed by your emotions by the culture of your organization the group that you work with i think understanding what risk is and how your daily how it impacts your daily work is important um but yeah i mean technology moves so fast at this point you know you you can't rely on this isn't like your grandfather's job where he's going to do the same kind of work the same way that he's always done it for 25 years and then get his pension. Um, so mm -hmm. I think being open to change is important. That being said, you know, when 
business schools and companies usually talk about risk, what they're talking about when they avoid it, they, they want to mitigate any potential downsides to the bottom line. They don't want to spend too much. They don't want to you know, lose market share. They don't want to uh, you know, invest too much of their resources in something that isn't going to pan out. Um, so again, some of that is how you define risk, how you talk about risk, where, you know, I think in a lot of places, there's sort of, um, you know, a contradictory feeling about risk. It's like, hey, you know, we want you to go out there and create something new and different and awesome. But we don't want to actually, you know, give you so much uh, time, space, money, or room to do that. Um, and operating between those two things can be a challenge. And yet, what we see is some people find a way. They make it happen. Um, but yeah, in bigger, more established companies, I, I think that a lot of times they're looking to break some of those barriers by acquiring the little guys who are doing something different. Um, mm -hmm. there's that old adage about how hard it is to, uh, turn an aircraft carrier when you have a huge company, it just, this is the way that it moves. This is the way it works. Um, and even a small change in direction takes a lot of um, planning. So, uh, you know, I think a lot of times smaller companies are agile. They may have more of that sort of go out there and try something new. Um, but, it, you know, they have, in some senses, less to, you know, less to risk or whatever, um, in terms of the bottom line. So I, you know, I, I, I think there's that sweet spot in between. How do you find something new? You're going to have to take some risks. You're going to have to, you know, not do things the way that your uh, company or your organization has always done. Um, but by the same token, you know, to find success, you have to often work within. I'm so impressed with serial entrepreneurs who, and a lot of times what they'll do is as soon as, their companies that they start to work with start getting more structured and start, you know, getting more risk averse, they're gone. They want to try and build something new. They want to get back into that space. Um, and so, uh, you know, it, you have some people, I guess, who their startup, you know, gets picked up and they think, okay, I'm going to, you know, I'm so excited to have a 401k and an actual, you know, regular salary. I'm staying put. And then you have other people uh -huh. who say, oh my gosh, this is not, gonna get me you know to my next new idea I gotta jump ship and start something new yeah yeah it's it's all about what uh brings a person alive yeah and, and for some that's risk yeah for others that's playing it safer yep one other thing that you write in your book is that Successful risk takers, one thing that they have in common is the ability to self-regulate their emotions. Yes. What part does self-regulation play in successful risk-taking? Oh, a huge one. There are a lot of factors. You know, I talked about the brain, um, and I've already talked about the fact that, you know, emotions play a huge role in this whole risk-taking algorithm that we take that plays out in our heads as we make decisions. And most of the time, we're not even conscious of it. But emotions, particularly strong emotions, have the ability to really skew 
that algorithm um, in ways that, that can be quite detrimental. Um, and I'll give you the simplest example of all, the lottery. So, you know, chances are, uh, you know, and can probably pair it back or else you can go to the lottery website for your state and you can see that the likelihood of winning the Powerball is one and I think 189 million chances. Mm -hmm. But then you, you know that you're basically just handing your dollar back to the state, you know, but all of a sudden you'll see, you know, right around the time it usually goes over 250 million or whatever, everybody's at the store, everybody's buying tickets, they're all excited about, you know, they're talking about what could you do with that, that money? What would you do with it? Oh, I'd help my parents and I'd do this and my kid's college would be taken care of and oh, I'd get myself, you know, that car. And <laughs> you get excited about it. You get, you know, really, really positive about it. And that sways the occasion, uh, that sort of sways the way you think about the statistics. So now it's not one in 189 million chance, you know, of winning. It's some chance of winning. It's mm -hmm. possible. Uh -huh. And so when you put those strong emotions into it, you know, it, it really changes the way you think about that. And so you see the same things with other activities as well, both negative and positive emotions. Um, you know, you, and this isn't necessarily a risk per se, but you know, if you ever stand in line at a amusement park at the roller coaster and watch how some people, they're totally psyching themselves up, like, oh my God, this is gonna be so awesome, this is gonna be so scary. And, oh my gosh, I heard that somebody like lost their foot. And, you know, there's some people who use that emotion and it totally, you know, pushes them up and they're going to do it no matter what. And they're not going to keep their hands inside the car and they're not going to, you know. But then you have other people who take those same feelings and emotions and, um, you know, they, they will, um, you know, won't go at all. All of a sudden, even though it's an amusement park and, you know, they've heard some story from somebody. So those strong emotions really, you know, affect mm -hmm. how you're assessing the situation. And so if you're super stressed out, you're probably not going to make as good decisions. Um, if you're sad or overly happy, you're probably not going to make the best decisions. So being able to self-regulate, to know that those emotions can really sort of change that algorithm. Um, and, you know, take that into account is important. And that's where that self-regulation comes in. Risk-taking is not supposed to be impulsive, fly by the seat of your pants kind of mm -hmm. decision-making. It's, it's tempered, it's thoughtful. Um, and so those big emotions can make it a lot more impulsive in, in both directions, um, unless right. you have sort of the self-awareness to say, okay, wait a minute. You know, I'm I'm psyching myself up or psyching myself down here. I need to look back at, on the factors that really matter, and the fact yeah. that some weird story about you know some guy losing his foot on this roller coaster 15 years ago really has no relevance to the risks involved with me taking this ride. And that's probably where the idea of sleeping on it comes from. You know, yeah. before making a decision, do you think? I think it helps, you know, sometimes you have to make a decision quickly and, but even then, you know, a, a quick decision doesn't necessarily have to be an impulsive decision. You want it to be driven by 
more than just mm -hmm. how you feel about it. Gut feelings and gut instincts, they mm -hmm. can be really helpful. Again, the, those can be those, those faint whispers of emotion that are drawing back to your experiences or to similar experiences. Um, but when they're overwhelming, you know, they're, they're really going to change the way that you're assessing the different variables and the ultimate decision that you make. Right, right. Well, Kate, are you working on any other books right now? Um, I not not right at this moment. I'm I'm okay. writing a lot, uh, you know, about new stuff in healthcare. Of course, I always uh, am excited to write about um, neuroscience research and new things that are coming. Um, you know, I have two teenagers right now, so they hate me because I'm always throwing at them, you know, stuff about the teen brain. So they're just about mm. them. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so, you know, I'm just trying to work on uh, things that are interesting and um, that I, I think are worth understanding. Like I said earlier, the brain is in the prediction business, but it really is this organ that directs, you know, all that we, we perceive, all that we feel, all that we think, all that we do. And so if we can understand better how it works and how sometimes because it's in a big hurry to try to make some of those predictions, it can get in our way. Um, I think that's beneficial to everyone. Yeah, I do too. How can people stay in touch with you? How can they get their hands on your book, The Art of Risk? Well, so I chronically overshare on Twitter. Um, okay. At Kate Sukel, K-A-Y-T-S-U-K-E-L. Uh, I have a website, katesukel.com. Um, and you can find uh, The Art of Risk as well as my first book, This Is Your Brain on Sex, um, on Amazon, your favorite indie bookstore, really anywhere books are sold. All right, great. Well, thank you so much for being with us today, Kate. Risk is not synonymous with rash. It's about thoughtful decision-making based upon familiarity. Don't go blindly. Assess, practice, prepare. Take adequate precautions to proactively deal with life's daily chances. Thanks for tuning in. This is Unlocking Mindset, and I'm Jennifer Zock.